Welcome to Radio Beacon, the podcast of Beacon Communications. I'm Dan Kittredge, editor of the Cranston Herald, joined as always by Jake Morocco, editor of the Johnson Sunrise. Happy Friday, Jake. Happy Friday, Dan. How you doing? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Hanging in there. Yeah. It's a the rainy, rainy morning. It's kind of a sleepy, overcast day. Friday here, midsummer. So, uh... Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy and enjoying the season out there. It's been uh, another busy news week. Uh, been, you know, with the, the crisis going on, with the election looming, um, with the General Assembly back in session, and there's a lot going on. So it's it's not the usual sleepy summer uh, that we that that we've had here many years uh, in the news business locally. It's uh, it's keeping us on our toes for sure, and. Um, so to start off, I guess the, the the there was no COVID nineteen briefing on the state level today. Uh, I know there was some concern earlier this week uh, when there was a little spike in the numbers on uh, on Tuesday, I believe. But um, they've stabilized a bit the last few days, which is positive news. The governor's moving to a uh, uh, one day a week briefing schedule now on Wednesdays only, unless circumstances dictate otherwise so uh no new announcements or anything like that today uh, i think the big thing from this week was uh, the governor announced some small business assistance which has been the subject of some some controversy over uh the timing why it hasn't been done yet and the, the scope of it but uh you can check out our coverage of that um there was also the the state beaches at scarborough and musquamacate especially I guess there's growing concern about the spread of, of the coronavirus in Narragansett and Westerly and some of the state's coastal communities as people head down there um, for recreation and to go to the beaches and stuff. And the governor said they've seen uh, had some overcrowding issues at those two beaches in particular. So she announced on Wednesday that they were scaling back the parking lot capacity at those two beaches to 25 percent, which was down from 75, I think it was. So um, I'm sure that's. That's uh, not welcome news to a lot of Rhode Islanders, but uh, the state uh, and the governor continue to, to try to keep a lid on the virus, and uh, they see this as necessary to do it because we continue to see in other parts of the country things are the picture is is not good. So um, hopefully that doesn't uh, we don't see the kind of resurgence here and the kind of issues that are being faced elsewhere, but. Aside from those uh, directly, you know, the, the the other, you know, the big headlines from our publications this week um, largely had to do still with the crisis and associated issues. Primarily, the the top issue, I think, I think there's a clear one too here. The top one, I think, undoubtedly, is the planned return to in-person school on August 31st. Um, the, the governor is targeted. And uh, today is actually the due date, I believe, for districts across the state to submit these uh, these plans to the Department of Education, reopening plans that are based on, I, I think it's four different scenarios they're using now. It's, um, you know, planning for everything from full distance learning, which is what was in place for the since March after schools were abruptly closed through the end of, of this past year. Um, so either the full return to distance learning, and then they have these two middle tier options, which are limited or uh, um, partial is the terminology they're using, return to uh, in-person classrooms. 
which is kind of like uh, splitting kids splitting the time. And I think it, it uh, has to do with capacity limits is what the, the, you know, it's kind of a fine differentiation. And then there's the more complete return to in-person classrooms. Now I know in, in Cranston, uh, Superintendent Janine Notamassi on Monday unveiled her uh, or the, the the district's reopening plan um, to the the school committee during a work session. And now the, the Cranston plan um, it seems to be pretty similar from what I'm seeing to a lot of other plans that are being released across the state. I believe, including in, in Johnston, Jake, from reading your coverage, it basically relies, you know, even the full return option is not a full return. It's a hybrid model um, in which kids would be split up into two different groups. Kids would go on to school two days a week, be Tuesday, Thursday for one group, Wednesday, Friday for the other group. Every Monday is a distance learning day because uh, the statewide calendar that's been adopted um, uses Mondays for a lot of Mondays for professional development days for teachers. And then there's also uh holidays that fall on Mondays. So they've kind of zeroed out Mondays and um, uh, have the kids on a split schedule. Um, so there's a lot else involved in the, the Cranston plan. I, it involves wearing face masks on the part of kids and, and, um, and, and teachers and staff. Uh, there's a, there's the different capacity limits. Kids at the younger grade levels will be kept in kind of stable groups throughout the day. Um, Kids in the higher levels would, you know, high school in particular, it's very, because of the way their schedules are structured and stuff is how um, Janine explained it, that, you know, it's not really possible for them to be stable, but that they'll be asked to keep distancing and stuff. And there'll only be, basically she said, you know, a a full in-person return with the distancing requirements and safety requirements that would be in place is just impossible. So they have no option but to, to, go with this hybrid approach. And I know transportation particularly, there's not really any answers right now. Um, I think Janine said that Cranston alone would need 37 additional buses to be able to comply with all of the regulations um, and and provide transportation for students as as is, is normally done. So, which obviously, especially in a month's time, I don't uh, see that happening. Um, with the cost and the logistics involved. So aside, you know, staffing, uh, you know, not even taking that into account. But uh, she was pretty frank that there's, you know, this is an evolving situation, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week. We, uh, I think the quote was, you know, this is how things, we see things July 13th. You know, we have no idea what it's going to look like on August 13th. It could look very different. The guidance from Ride and their decision making could be very different. So um, it was interesting to get a, a look into that, and it just seems increasingly uncertain. You know, there was a point I think where it, it seemed like it was going to be feasible, um, or that it, it might be in some form more feasible. Now it's I think you really got a question um, to what degree kids are actually going to be going back. I don't know, Jake. What's your read, and what was it like um, in Johnston? So Bernard DeLillo, superintendent of schools over there, he gave his, his reopening, kind of the, explained the plans during the school committee meeting this past week. And he said that, yeah, that partial in-person learning is probably the easiest one, the most suitable one for what they're going to have to go through because it, it, it's, like you said, with transportation and busing, Johnson feels the same strain. 
it's just not possible with the distancing and, and the rules set in place to bring all those kids to school on the same day. It's just not going to happen. So that's why full in-person learning probably, and not to mention distancing all those kids in one classroom is impossible as well. But I think the way that he was kind of reading the tea leaves in the situation is that they will probably end up going with that that option in the middle. Not necessarily full distance learning, not necessarily bringing everybody back, but the uh, the model that Johnson's using, for example, is they're going to break kids down by the first letter of their last name. He said, as an example, A through M and M through Z. That might not be the case, depending on how that the numbers break down there. But they're looking to send, for example, A through M to school on Tuesday and Thursday, and th- N to Z to school on Wednesday and Friday, and then Mondays, like you said, in Cranston would be just distance, distance learning days. But they, uh, it's it's not over yet. Like he said, uh, they might not receive guidance on this until August seventeenth, which is two weeks before school starts. So it might be a scramble for a lot of districts to get this together. And uh, Joe Rotella, the vice president of the school committee, suggested holding a town hall with all of the quote-unquote stakeholders, which I'm assuming means parents, families, guardians, everybody who has an opinion on this. And Bob LaFazia, the chairman, said we should do a survey, uh, see how people will be affected by the busing, you know, how many people can bring their own kids to school. I know, and like he said, it's a salient point. A lot of parents are going back to work. It's it's going to be very difficult to balance everything and, and, and juggle all those spinning plates. But it's, it, it is a process, like you said. It's July, what is it, 17th, and that's a month from today is when the latest possible time they can receive that guidance. So it, it's going it, it's, it's to be really down to the wire for a lot of these districts. It's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I, I certainly do not envy the task, and no. I know uh, how trying of a time this is for, for the folks, uh, you know, made charge of making these plans and implementing them, but also for all the staff, all uh, the families and the students, the, the uncertainty is just um, very difficult. So um, on the Warwick side, we, there is some uh, check out this week's beacon for uh, uh, Tara Monastesi's story. Um, she has some coverage of the Warwick school committee's deliberations on this, and we'll uh, certainly be keeping um, the community up to speed going forward um, with coverage of, of how this is all unfolding um and hopefully sooner than later there yeah. is a, a more final um decision being made in, in course of action um the other uh, big uh takeaway for me you know the virus related or adjacent story this week um that's kind of bubbled back up is uh what voting is going to look like in the September 8th primary and then also the November 3rd, I believe it's the third, right? General election. Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah. There's been renewed debate over how the election should be, how these elections should be held. The presidential preference primary, which was originally scheduled in April, was delayed till June um, through executive order by the governor earlier this year. And then that ballot was held, uh, as, as people know, primarily by mail um, and mail ballot applications were sent to all Rhode Islanders for that for that election. I know it that led to a, a pretty sure a pretty dramatic uptick in turnout and, and people participating. But there have been a lot of questions about um, ballots being, you know, issues with the process, ballots being mailed to returned or mailed to ineligible or even deceased voters and, and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's really kind of bubbled back up. Uh, I know in the, the, the assembly, I believe at this point, 
and forgive me if I'm wrong, I believe they have approved now both chambers or are on course to at least legislation that would um, extend uh, the emergency voting period, basically allowing people to vote early, um, 20 days prior to the, the election in person at their local city or town hall um, without, you know, basically filing a mail ballot application on site. Um, another bill that I think was unexpected in, in some quarters came out of the House uh, and was endorsed by the House leadership um, that would make both the September primary and the November general election also primarily mail ballot voting, essentially repeating that step of mailing applications to all voters. Uh, it has passed the House, but the, the Senate president, Dominic Ruggiero, has has put the brakes on it in the Senate, saying that, um, you know, they're pushing back, saying, pointing to the issues with uh, the efficiency of the mailing and the presidential primary and some of the issues that were experienced. Um, so I don't know. It, it's kind of unclear where it's going to go. I don't know. The, the governor earlier this week was asked about it and didn't seem particularly anxious to, to get involved. Kind of um, her answer was more or less, you know, if I'm my characterization of it, I think is accurate that, you know, it's, it's the Board of Elections and the Secretary of State that need to work this out. Um, I uh, last week, the Cranston Board of Canvassers uh, met for the first time in a little while. And uh, the registrar there, Nick Lima, who's been a very uh, active and vocal um, proponent or, or raising the alarm on these issues. Um, everything from the date of the September 8th primary, which falls right after Labor Day, which he says creates big logistical issues to um, the potential for mail ballot applications to overrun local canvassing offices and basically halt their operations. He's, he's been uh, raising the alarm on a lot of fronts. Um, and last week, he said the number one concern in Cranston is poll workers, the availability of enough people to poll or to staff the city's roughly 30 um, polling locations for both elections. So, um, you know, they're they're planning some outreach, but he, he painted a pretty stark picture where, um, you know, they're already seeing a, a call out attrition rate among longtime poll workers. A lot of these folks are you know, older, have been doing it for a while. They're in, um, you know, and they're folks that are at higher risk of uh, from the virus. So there's obviously a lot of safety concerns all around. And, um, you know, you can imagine it being very difficult if uh, if they don't have the folks to, to actually staff the polling places and then um, all the other issues that, that go along with what they're doing. So um, Anyway, you can read uh, my story on that in this week's Herald. Uh, it was uh, I talked to Nick subsequently as well, and he gave me some uh, really good picture of, of what's going on and what the issues are. So, and I certainly encourage anyone that's uh, you know willing and able to to go to, you know check check out being a poll worker and um, see what it entails and if it's something you might be comfortable with because um, this this election is. Uh, going to be big for Cranston and for, you know, and a lot of other places. So locally in terms of local races, especially and stuff. So, um, beyond that, um, I would say there was some political news. Uh, you know, the nomination period has closed. The signatures are in candidates have either qualified or not for the ballot. I know in Warwick, 
Um, we did have the race for mayor is down to three candidates. Republican Ray McKay did not qualify for the ballot. So uh, you've got a Democratic race between incumbent Joe Solomon and Carol Callahan Bainham is challenging him in the primary. And then uh, Frank Picosi running as an independent in Warwick, which will be, uh, I know, a, a, one of the races to watch. In Cranston, there weren't a lot of a whole lot of surprises with the ballot qualifications. Although I uh, would note that um, two of the of the city's six, the city council's six ward seats, um, four were set to be contested, but now it's down to two after Republican challengers in wards one and three fell short of the signature threshold. So. In, in Cranston, you're looking at uh, obviously primaries for on both sides for mayor. You're looking at a primary in the uh, the uh, Democratic citywide council field, and then in the general, it's only there, there are no school committee seats up uh, pending. And I need to check back in on the. There was a, a challenge to some signatures for one seat, but uh, it didn't seem likely that that candidate would ultimately qualify. So um, you're looking at a fairly quiet race down ballot in Cranston. Um, only the wards two and six seats will be, uh, and I would note, I was uh, talking with Mike Farina, the council, Cranston city council president earlier today. It does seem that Anise Germain, a Democrat who is uh, running for the ward two seat that was, uh, vacated by Paul McCauley who resigned recently. It, it seems like she's on track for appointment to the council. Um, forget if he said later this month or next. I think it's later this month. So be watching that. But uh, um, that's kind of the political scene in, in Cranston. Um, any, uh, Jake, I thought you're, you're right up on the Greenville Inn this week. And it's, uh, they're, they're closing up shop after many years. So I thought that was a really good story. Thank you. It was a, uh, it was a good conversation with, uh, Diane Belknap. It was, it's a very tough decision for them, obviously. And, uh, the Green Villain's been an institution in, in Smithfield and the surrounding area for many decades. So it, it was nice to be able to kind of encapsulate their impact on the community and how close they were with all their customers. And it's something they've grown up with. And it was a very, as Diane told me, very bittersweet, difficult decision, but, uh, definitely a story more than worth telling because they've been around for for so long and it was uh, it was a pleasure to be able to tell it so it's it was a, a very good interview and it's one that uh, one of one of my probably one of my favorite stories of the year honestly yeah it was very well done I, it was Thank a good you. read nice get um, anything else you wanted to highlight from the, the week in the news uh, in Johnston the town council passed a slew of zoning changes not too much really in the weeds some flexible design stuff that have been tossed around for a while this it's they've been debating these things for six months now they wanted tom dell or the planner to come in and talk a little bit more about them he did and they, they've had a lot of discussion bandying it back and forth but finally they passed it the other night they will be hearing at their next meeting in august i think it's august 10th they'll be hearing an ordinance on the decommissioning of solar farms so they they kind of want to get more in line with kind of the state language on that so they are going to be doing a hearing on that, so that's something to look forward to uh, to in the in the near future. So it's something to definitely keep an eye on in uh, in Johnson. For sure. One, uh, I'll note this as a tease, and I guess I, I I'll be careful with what I say because I, I I just picked up on this. It's something I'm going to be chasing, but uh, I did see some chatter on social media that uh, Mulligan's Island uh, may be 
uh, under agreement for sale. Really? Um, some different uh, development plans in store for that site. So interesting. Um, that's that's I'm working that story this afternoon. We'll see how it materializes. But a uh, little tidbit for a podcast exclusive, a little nugget for our listeners. Keep an eye for that story. Absolutely. Um, with that, we'll move to our guest for this week. We are uh, very pleased to have been joined by Speaker of the House Nick Mattiello. He is running for re-election. Um, he's facing a challenge from uh, Mayor Alan Fung's wife, Barbara Ann Fenton Fung. It's one of the, if not the, uh, you know, most most closely watched. And I know it's generally it's a race that's generating a lot of excitement and interest across the state. Uh, the speaker, um, in the last two times he's run, faced uh, really strong challenges from Steve Frias, and uh, um, you know this 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 promises to be quite a race. So. Um, the speaker was uh, very generous with his time. He came in and, and met with myself and John Howell, our publisher and the editor of the Warwick Beacon. Um, John had to pop out a little early during the discussion, but uh, um, the speaker gave us a lot of time and he covered, uh, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we talked about, you know, why he's running, his plans, his thoughts on COVID response, on the mail balloting issue, um, a whole host of issues. So, um I know uh, a lot of folks are interested to hear what the speaker has to say. Uh, so we'll go to that interview and then uh, Jake and I will return for a quick wrap up. note our conversation begins with John asking the speaker a question about his experience on the campaign trail so far. It, it, it's different you know I, I, I've always known exactly how to approach um, conversing with people and, and this yeah. time out of respect for What's them yeah. you have to really give it a lot of thought and how best to do it and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So it's, it's, it's just uh, a different cycle with a different thought process. What'd you do in terms of getting signatures? Were you, how'd you do that? Very easy, actually, for all the discussion about it. It took me one day, I got 150 signatures and it was uh, the easiest cycle I ever got signatures in. I, 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 I got three or four friends in the district. They all got roughly 30, 40 signatures each. I was done in one day. And they all went to friends who were accustomed to seeing them. So there was no, you know, there was... It wasn't like, who are you? No, no. I think if you tried to cold knock, and that that's the idea, I think, around signatures. You, know, you, you create... It almost requires a tie to the community. Right. So if you were cold knocking, I think people were a little apprehensive to spend time with you because they don't know you. They don't know if, you know, if you're sick. They don't know if you're not. If you have a relationship with someone, they're happy to talk to you. Right. So, no, we had no problem. Actually, I was very surprised. The, the, the morning after we got our papers, everyone called. I had 150 signatures. Usually I'll go out door knocking for days. I... 
Right. I, I got a few. I didn't even turn in some of my signatures, to be honest with you. They're still in my car because I didn't need you to. Knew, you knew you had some. Yeah, I knew. I turned in 150 on the first day that we could. I think the Monday after the weekend or the Tuesday after the weekend, whatever the, the non-holiday was. And uh, at that point, uh, about 130-something of them were good. And I still had some in my car I was collecting in the meantime. I never even turned them in. So how will a campaign differ, given the pandemic? The, the only real difference will be how much face-to-face contact we have with people. I mean, the other stuff, the mailers and, you know, uh, whatever else we do will, will be pretty much the same. Um, the, the, the difference is how the, anything that requires contact with people will have to be thought about, mm-hmm. modified, adjusted, or not done. Mm. So, I mean, we shall see. I, I'm, I'm really trying to pay attention to what others are doing in the community mm-hmm. and asking them what the reaction is from people. And you're, we're hear, hearing different things. I, uh, I talk to a lot of constituents, but I'm not cold knocking right now because um, we just sent out a, uh, a survey, mm-hmm. asked people what they thought, and you got different different responses you know there's there's a big chunk of people that are not comfortable with people knocking on their doors that's true and you see it more and more especially with the searches that are going on out of state yeah now i know i'm helping oh my heavens if that's happening there what am i gonna do it's 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 scary because what are we going to do as a country as well as as a state you know, I you don't know how far off the vaccine is, right? And I think they are. Um, we just went through one round of of stabilization dollars from the federal government. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through another round. I don't know if the state's going to get any assistance at this point. I'm you know I'm still hopeful, but becoming more reluctant. Um, I, I'm more more skeptical that we will. Um, how many rounds can the federal government continue to stimulate and stabilize the national economy before they lose the borrowing resources to, in fact, um, keep the economy going and, and stable? So, you know, that, that those are all things that we have to be mindful of. And I'm just I'm, I'm mindful of what our long-term needs need to be and how we bridge from here to there and how we do that while uh we have to coexist with the coronavirus it's it's going to be very difficult how about this you know the thought of renewing the six hundred dollars a week for those who are out of work i would do something um i I, for those that are out of work i would certainly do something with the uh um, unemployment fund, uh, and I, I hope the federal government does. I wouldn't give a blanket 600 extra per week on top of what they would get from unemployment because I do believe, talking to business, there's a disincentive uh, for people going back to work. I've talked to people that said, I don't have the heart to call my people back. You know, I called one of my employees and uh, they, they almost cringed. You're not going to call me back, are you? Because it, well, it's not a great paying job 
and they're making a lot more on unemployment. So even employers uh, are, are reluctant to call people back. And then what I've heard from some in the federal delegation is, you know, call unemployment. Most employees aren't going to do that when their employees don't want to come back. They're not going to report their employees right. for wanting to stay on, on unemployment and make more money than they would make working. So I don't support giving another full 600 per week, but I do support, um, I heard one, one option was to give up to 100% of lost wages for those that are out of work. I think that would be Right, probably, I've heard that one too. That's probably a decent uh, compromise. Not, not don't give a bonus to stay out of work. I mean, look, everybody wants to make as much money as they can with as little effort. So if you can stay home and make more than you can working, who would want to go to work? I mean, that's just human nature. So uh, it, it's not laziness. It's not uh, bad intention. It's just, it's what people are going to do, I believe. So I think... We should help people as much as we possibly can. We have to find ways to stabilize our economy because um, the COVID-19 has wreaked unprecedented uh, havoc, but we also have to encourage them to go to work. I guess I'll start off asking you to adopt this uh, promises made, promises kept slogan for this campaign. Can you expand on, on that a little bit Um, yes, I, I, I'll be happy to. Um, several years ago, um, I decided that my constituents and, and actually the state really wanted and deserved the car tax phase out. So we came up with a plan. It was, it was complex. It was hard to do, but we came up with a plan. We fully funded it. We're going into the fourth year this year. Um, and people are getting considerable relief. Way back then, I said I wanted to see that plan through. It gets resistance. When you give people back their own money, you get pushback because everybody else wants to spend it in different ways. Now, they won't say that necessarily publicly, but that's the reality. I have had to fight real hard to keep that on track. And I'm pretty convinced that if I'm not there to fight hard from the speaker's position to keep it on track that it'll probably be derailed. Um, and if it's derailed before it's fully implemented, eventually they're going to pull it back, 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 back. And we're going to be at the point where we once again have the highest car tax in the country. Unbelievably, the city of Cranston probably has one of the highest car taxes in the absolute country. Providence is a little ahead and, you know, there's a few communities ahead of Cranston, but Cranston has a municipal excise tax that's one of the highest in the country. Half the states don't even have one. When I go to conferences and I talk to other speakers about the car tax, they scratch their head. You mean you actually have to pay money for your car after you pay the sales tax? They, they don't understand it. So we're trying to bring a certain equity to the state of Rhode Island and in, in, in our constituencies. Uh, and I certainly want to assist my constituents in Cranston. So I'm going to minimum want to stay through uh, when it's fully phased out. So that's one more term. Now, I'm not suggesting my retirement thereafter, but I, I want to see that through. And I've always said I want to see that through plus a little more 
just to make sure it's solidified in place and, and nobody works to uh, undo a hard work of the previous six years. So promise made, promise kept. Very hard promise to keep. We actually stopped the state budget several years ago to make sure it was in law and make sure it was funded and make sure it was on track. So when I make a promise, I keep a promise. Um, before I ran, the first time I ever ran, I, I spoke to one of your reporters. I think it was Elizabeth Seal. I always remember that first interview. Yes. <laughs> and um, very nice, very, very, very nice young woman. Um, and I talked about education and how I believed Cranston was being shortchanged by the state for education funding. So interestingly enough, right, I win the election right after I won. Mayor Napolitano at the time brought all the delegation and the reps and the senators. And he was actually pretty astute financially. And he said, look, here's what Cranston's getting. Here's the number of students we're getting. And he did the analysis. Cranston's getting shortchanged in the state formula. That was my very first policy meeting. It was at the, the, the city hall council chambers with the mayor and my colleagues. Never forgot that. So then start working, you know, working on that. We, we were working on a formula. It took several years to do. Lo and behold, I become the majority leader. I was working on the formula prior there too. I become the majority leader. I get the votes together to pass the formula, which was particularly good to Cranston and cities like Cranston. And thereafter, we've, uh, we've changed the inequity. At this point, Cranston's being treated fairly. Money follows the child. That was one of my first campaign promises to make sure that Cranston residents get treated more fairly. I've looked at it recently. We have provided an additional since I got elected. Uh, well, since I got elected, not speaker. We have provided an additional hundred and thirty million to the city of Cranston. Think about the impact if you take half that money away. Think of the impact on our taxes on, on, our, on our taxes in Cranston. The city of Cranston actually has had the benefit, luxury of not investing as much. We've been sending so much money additional every, every year. Cranston's been spending their money elsewhere and not increasing spending on education. That's all state driven. Formula that I helped pass, I helped contribute to based on one of my original promises in one of my initial policy meetings with uh, Mayor Napolitano. Every year we fully funded the formula. We're up to, I think, oh, I wish I looked at it. It's in one of the flyers that uh, she gave you. We just sent it out. I think we're up to 68 million. Yes. In the last day, it went up from 31. It's more than doubled. State aid to Cranston is more than doubled. Well, you know, Warwick legislators, sir, I should say the Warwick School Committee is using Cranston mm -hmm. as an example and saying, why isn't Warwick getting the same level of funding? And we have the, actually we have, Cranston has maybe a hundred more students collectively than Warwick. A little bit There's bigger. a lot of factors to consider. Warwick should be doing pretty much the same as Cranston, though. Similar demographics, I would think. It's about six million off from Cranston. Uh, it, money follows the kids, so it's based on student population and, and other factors. Mm -hmm. So it should be similar, though. It should be, it should be close, but if Cranston's doing better, I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> I didn't think you would. <laughs> you know, I mean, promise made, promise kept. 
So what I say, I mean, I don't just say things. I, I think my reputation is that I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm going to use the word pander. It doesn't have a nice connotation, but I think politicians too often say things that sound good with no real expectation of being able to deliver on it. I don't do that. If I say it, I, I work hard on getting it done. And I think people have come to realize over time that I say what I mean. I'm, I do what I say I'm going to do, and I keep my commitment. So promises made, promises kept. Speaking of education, from the city's budget standpoint, the, the school budget and the uncertainty about the additional state aid that was projected for this, this year is kind of the biggest question at this point. What, what are your, the, the, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of answers coming to city leaders at this point. I know the assembly's just getting back to work. Well, I, I mean, I find that, that, that issue extraordinarily interesting and, quite frankly, extraordinarily disingenuous. The entire country is under a veil of uncertainty. I, I, I agree. The city of Cranston School Department has a level of uncertainty. The state has a level of uncertainty. The U.S. government has a level of uncertainty. Why does that responsibility somehow fall on the state? If anybody, it's the U.S. government. But why the state? Why doesn't it fall on the city of Cranston to figure out how they're going to deal with the COVID challenges? We're all having the same difficulties. So rather than apportion responsibility and blame, as some people do, even though they're locked down worse than anybody else, what I would say is let's recognize that we all have challenges, and we all do. Every state in the nation, every municipality in the nation. Let's work together on addressing it. Now, do I know exactly what's going to happen? No. Have we suggested that education is in any way going to be cut? Absolutely not. We have our limitations, and the state has been severely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. But I am hopeful that we will fully fund education and that uh, we, we address our community's needs one way or another. And I don't know how that's going to be yet, but we have not sent any negative signals. In fact, the current year, we just sent an additional $2.7 million to Cranston. So in light of the uncertainty, Cranston's getting even more than they were projected. They got an additional $6 million last year total, more than six. So I would say we're all doing very good in extraordinarily bad times. It's a, it's a time of shared sacrifice, and it's absolutely a time of uncertainty. But that's not the fault of anybody. So anybody pointing fingers for uncertainty, shame on them. Yeah. And, and have them come to the solution and have them step up and have them find the money from their local level. If, if, if they have the, the printing press to create money where it doesn't exist, good for them. This is a time when we should come together. This is a time when we should band together and assist each other and recognize the difficulties that we face and look for common ground and solutions. It's not a time to suggest it's someone else's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. So anyone pointing at someone else, ask them what their ideas are. This is kind of a two-pronged question I wanted to ask. The lieutenant governor has been critical of the governor's approach to providing small business relief through the CARES Act money. And I know it, at one point you had been critical of the speed of the reopening plan. I guess I just want to 
small business side, especially with the announcement this week of the program she's putting forward, and then also where we are with the real All right. Well, I'm going to be very frank with you, which sometimes you shouldn't be. <laughs> um, first, the governor has done a great job throughout the pandemic and her handling of it, all aspects of it. And I've been in close communication with her and we have a lot of common ground. I don't agree with every decision she's made, by the way, but I probably wouldn't agree with all of yours or yours or yours. And she doesn't agree with all of mine. So reasonable minds can differ and I respect that. She has done an excellent job protecting the citizens of the state of Rhode Island. I want to open up faster because of the enormous economic impact on the state of Rhode Island and its citizens. So, you know, we're doing pretty well. I believe that we have to learn to coexist with the COVID virus and be as careful as we can, but open up our economy as fast as we can to increase our revenues and mitigate some of the difficulties. And it's for a while going to be a coexistence. And I don't think that the nation nor our state nor any state can afford to be too clamped down and shut down for too long a period of time. So that's why I want to open a little faster. Um, but we have the, the virus is dangerous and we do have to learn to protect ourselves, protect our citizens and coexist with it in the best way we possibly can. As far as spending the money, the governor, myself and the Senate president have had a conversation and one of my concerns is that what the federal government is going to do at the end of this month or early in August is say, we're not going to send you any new money, but we're going to give you more flexibility with the old money. Now, here's where I'm going to be very frank. The lieutenant governor does not have to balance the next budget. And if, it, if there's difficulty balancing it, he's just going to point at someone else. And I don't criticize him. I like the lieutenant governor. But that's a political reality. The governor, myself, the Senate president, and all of our colleagues have the responsibility of balancing the next budget. And that requires addressing a lot of state needs. I don't want to raise taxes. I don't want to cut any spending and social needs in a draconian manner. That means if we are going to have to rely on the COVID money we've already gotten from the federal government, we better preserve some of it. Because as of this point in time, we have less than our current budget deficit. I just suggested to the governor, and I believe she agreed, and I believe she, the Senate president, and myself were on the same page, but I don't want to speak for anybody else, that let's just... And I've said this publicly already. Let's just see what the full picture is. Let's know what we're dealing with before we start spending money because you got one shot to spend the same dollar. And if you spend the entire COVID money or you, you spend enough of it that you don't have nearly enough to deal with your budget shortfalls, you're going to have to address that. So you're going to give grants to companies and then create a more hostile work environment for them to work in. That's negative engineering and it's absurd in my opinion. So the governor, myself, the Senate president, and all of our colleagues have a responsibility to 
produce a responsible, balanced budget. That's why I don't think the money should go out. I, I respect what he's saying. He's a good advocate for small business, but he's seeing one slice of the picture, one slice of the pie, not the entire picture. If he had the responsibility of balancing the budget, I think his perspective would be different. That's not a negative comment about the lieutenant governor. I like him, I respect him, and I respect his pro-business position, but his perspective is much more narrow than the governor's or myself or the Senate president's. Are you supportive of the program? The, I guess it was four programs that the governor rolled out yesterday. I'm supportive of all of those, but I wouldn't advocate for any of that money to go out if it's going to limit our ability to deal with our state budget shortfalls created by the coronavirus. So I'm still of the opinion we have to wait until we see what the full picture is and then make smart decisions, make the best decisions possible. If you make some decisions too early, you limit your decisions later and you make some of those decisions more difficult. I'm concerned about our economic health going forward for all of our businesses because at the end of the day you're only going to give grants to a limited number of businesses and at the end of the day your economic environment that applies to everybody is what everyone's going to have to live with long term so I want to make sure that's a, as competitive an economic environment as possible the only way to do that is for the state to be healthy or the, the only way to secure that is for the state to be healthy and because when the state's budget is distressed, it's got to meet its obligations one way or another. You either have to make draconian cuts or increase taxes. Neither one of those is good for small business. So I just want to make sure we have a comprehensive approach and we know exactly what we're doing before we do it. The level of uh, grants, uh, what is it, Dan, 15,000 is yeah, the max? Do you think that's enough to do anything? No. You know, it, it, it'll help some businesses, but you're giving businesses grants to help them go out a little further. I think, and, and I, I like the plan. So once again, I, I support the governor in her plan and the ideas. I think they're actually very good and very thoughtful and, and they will assist businesses. So if we could keep our economic environment as competitive as it is right now and give the grants, yes, I think they'll be helpful. Mm -hmm. But if you give a fifty up to a $15,000 grant, so some companies are gonna get a lot less than that. And then you increase their taxes, to me, that's worse. Yeah. I'd rather not get the grant and, and work in a more competitive environment than get a grant and then be taxed higher for all eternity. One other question. Yes, uh, lots of questions. I, you know, I always have concerns when our most vulnerable are, you know, facing um, hardship and, and even death. Uh, so I'm concerned. I think we have to take a look at it. Um, I, I think we have to learn from our response this time and, and make sure that um, 
we have the appropriate people on staff. Some people are suggesting that we need more, more workers, more CNAs. I'm not convinced of that. I think every nursing home has to have a specialist that deals with viruses, that, 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 that deals with mitigation. Um, I believe the nursing homes that, that had that type of personnel on staff had better results. I think we need more coordination between someone like that and the Department of Health. Um, so we'll see, and you know, we'll we'll study this um, as time goes on. There was suggestion that we, you know, we should have done it in, in the midst of it. Once the virus infiltrated the nursing homes, it, it it was almost too late to really do anything except do your best under the circumstances. Um, and th there's a real question as to whether or not we could have done a better job in protecting our, our most vulnerable citizens or not. So we will have to assess that over time. And, and I think uh, after we do so, hopefully we come up with best practices. But in fairness to everybody involved, uh, from the national to the state government, a lot of learning occurred as we were going. I mean, this is a new virus. We didn't have experience with it. And um, I think they dealt with it as well as they could under the circumstances. But we've learned a lot since then. Even our, our hospitals have learned a lot. They know how to treat COVID-19 patients much better today than, than at first. And I, I've talked to the, uh, the leaders of both uh, hospital systems. And they're much more comfortable with uh, their, their protocol for treating COVID-19 today versus back then. Back then it scared them. Today they think they have a handle on it. And, you know, we don't have a cure, uh, so to speak, but we have therapies that work a lot more effectively than before. So, you know, as, as we learn, we're going to have to look back and assess whether or not we did a good enough job. I would su suspect we did some things well and some things not as well as we could have. And, you know, for the, the next pandemic, uh, we'll, we'll learn and we'll do better. In the same vein, uh, how do you feel about the legislation uh, that would set requirements in terms of uh, hours of direct care to patients? The, you know, what is it, four, four and a half hours? 4.1. Or 4.1, right. Well, it's, it's, it hasn't gotten a thorough hearing yet. So, you know, I, I look forward to the thorough hearing. I, I think that's a different issue than a response to this. I, I think a lot of people are trying to connect the two. I don't see that. Yeah. Um, if a patient needs two hours of, of treatment and you give them or care and you give them 4.1 hours, have you gained anything? You've just brought more people into the building. You've potentially increased the hazard to the uh, the residents of the nursing home by bringing in more people than you actually need. If you're thinking the COVID thing. Yes. Right. Yes. But I've heard it argued, you know, uh, from some of the people that are, you know, actually providing the care that they've got, you know, 15 or 20 patients and they couldn't possibly devote those kind of hours on an individual basis to these people? I think it has to be studied. What I am told, and I don't know because we haven't had a hearing on it, mm -hmm. and I, I want to hear from everybody, but what I'm told is that we follow CDC guidelines for acuity 
uh, level needs. So if someone needs four hours, you give them four hours. If someone needs two hours of care, you give them two hours of care. If someone needs eight hours, you give them eight hours. Setting an arbitrary minimum that may be higher than the acuity level of many of their patients is just a waste of resources in my, in, in my opinion. I think we have to make sure that our nursing homes are meeting the acuity level of every one of their patients appropriately. So it seems to me that 15 patients per, per CNA or medical uh, uh, worker would be inappropriate under any circumstances, whether you have, you know, a whatever your threshold is. And I don't think that would meet CDC acuity level guidelines either. So. We do have protocols in place currently, I'm told. Um, everybody should be following those. If they're not, and we'll learn that at a hearing, we'll find ways to address it. But an arbitrary number of 4.1 is, is arbitrary. And it may do more harm than good. It may do good. I don't know. Let's, let's see what the hearing process brings us. Uh, I will tell you, I don't think any state is near that. And also, I don't think any states over two. I could be wrong in that, but the states that have a minimum are usually very low. So my guess, and I don't know this, so this is speculation, but my guess is if they're willing to set a minimum hours of treatment per patient, they do it for one of the lower acuity levels, and then it goes up from there. You don't treat it for a high acuity level. That would mean you need over two people, uh, well, eight hours. Yeah, you'd have one person. Two patients two, per. Yeah, per person. Per no, person. You need more than two people for two patients. Right. Eight hour day. Four point one. You need three three employees for two patients. That's right, because they've got you're not working a full eight hours. So all of that's going to need study. I don't, I don't have a firm opinion, but I do know that it's much more than any other state. So when you be, start becoming an outlier, I start having concerns. Um, and I would say that it's an issue that deserves and needs a lot of study. And wherever that takes us, it takes us. If we learn that the nursing homes aren't complying with their current standards, that's going to have to be something that is addressed by the Department of Health and we'll make sure it is. Our patients deserve appropriate care. But interestingly enough, I think uh, nursing homes have just won an award. Uh, you know, they, they consistently they have, yeah. get a, rated very well quality-wise. So let's see where we really are. And, and Ron, let me just hit on this one too. I know, Dan, you've got some more questions, but... Uh, on uh, elections coming up, the primary as well as general election, how do you feel that should be managed given COVID? Well, we have a bill uh, that uh, I expect to pass today that's going to go to mail ballot and right. reduce the number of signatures for, uh, um, for the mail ballot applications, the witnesses and the notary. Um, how about early voting? 
I, I, I don't know that early voting is necessarily um, a response to COVID if you're doing mail ballots. I mean, it's, it's a request that people have had over time. We've never passed early voting. Um, I think people kind of like our system of voting. You go, you go out on election day and you see all your neighbors and friends and it's, you know, people, people look forward to that. And it, it's, it's actually an exciting day in Rhode Island. Uh, so if everyone's voting on all different days, you kind of lose that. And, um, uh, but so you, I don't, but you don't want crowds at the polls either. No, the mail ballot, if, if we, if the mail ballots passed that that would address that. Right so, now, I think if, if with COVID being what it is right now, I think you could hold a traditional um, election. However, we don't know if it's going to spike or not. So we have a bill to, to permit it to go by mail ballot. And, and that would take care of all those concerns. So it, if you're someone that wants to go to the polls, you go to the polls. If you're someone that uh, is vulnerable or just uh, is, is more nervous about the virus than, than somebody else, and you, you, you don't want to go to the polls, you should be able to vote. So that's what we're addressing that in legislation that I anticipate passing today. I know the, the Senate president expressed some skepticism or, or opposition to that. Have you spoken with him, or do you think they're... We've, we've been talking about the issue for a while, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we're talking, so we'll, we'll, see, we'll see where that goes being repetitive now, but I think if, if everything stays consistent with where we are today in terms of infection rates with COVID-19, I think you could hold a traditional election. I think people would come out and they'd wear their mask and socially distance, and I, I think people would actually look forward to that. Well, most people, some would not, but they, they could today ask for a, a mail ballot. So, so we still have that option, but you have to take the affirmative step of requesting the mail ballot versus it being sent out automatically. So even under our current law, anybody that's concerned with going to the polls has an option to address their needs. Uh, but our legislation would, would... Would you do the same thing for the primary? Our legislation is, is in fact calling for that. Because I think in the way uh, Secretary of State is looking at it is having a postcard for the primary and then an official application for a ballot for the general. Our, our legislation would mandate mail ballots for both. We're, we're going a so step further. So you'd have to go with the application process for both? If you choose. We're, we're suggesting you do exactly the same for the primary and the general that we did for the prefer uh, the presidential preference primary. Everybody gets an application, and you decide if you want to send it in, or you decide if you want to go to the polls. Got it. Okay. That's what I'm suggesting. Give people the option. Really, they have it now because every, anybody can request the mail ballot, but you have to take the step to do it. You have to get the application. Yes. So if you mail the application, then you've already you've already stepped. got it. Right. It cuts one step off, but you could request an application, I believe, online. So it, it's really we are making it easier, but anybody who wants a mail ballot right now would have access to one. They just have to take the extra step. 
But I would like to make it easier because I'm concerned that if we do have a COVID spike, that people will be become nervous and not want to go to the polls at you know at the last minute. And so that's that's a concern. You want everybody that wants to participate to participate in the election. To uh, return to politics, uh, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask uh, your opponent and, and some other critics have brought up some of the issues that have been you know, surrounded your, your speakership the last few years, the, the Jeff Britt issue, uh, Dr. Pedro, the convention center. I think I, I watched Barbara Ann on, on uh, Jean Valicente and um, she, she criticized it as a saying that she, she's hearing from people that some voters have had enough that she, she views it as kind of a trend and representative of some of the people that you have around you on your team. Right. Uh, can you respond to Yes, I could tell you that my last opponent in two election cycles said the same thing about my constituents, but yet they've reelected me. What I could tell you is my constituents right now, I believe, are as supportive as they've ever been, probably because of our policies and promises made, promises kept. At the end of the day, this is a job where you have to represent your constituents and produce the best possible results for them, address their needs. That's why I ran, that's why I continue to run. I am in a unique position as the first and only speaker in the history of the city of Cranston. Now, a hundred years before that, there was another speaker. So technically, I'm the second speaker from the region, but it was before it was even a city. So I'm the first speaker in the city of Cranston's history. Um, and that creates an opportunity to benefit the citizens of Cranston. Interestingly enough, some of the elected officials would like to squander that opportunity that will probably never come again in any of our lifetimes. Now it could, the lightning could hit again, but it, it, it may not. So I believe my constituents understand the value of that and it enables me to keep the promises I make. It gives me the position, um, the policy-making ability, the budget, uh, ability to produce for my citizens. They understand that. Getting that back, you know, uh, Britt, he was an independent contractor that made a mistake, had nothing to do with me, fully looked at, fully uh, investigated, and that's the conclusion. Relative to the convention center, that was the right decision on behalf of the taxpayers. That needs to be looked at. So I don't back away from public needs. I think it needs to be looked at, hasn't been yet, and someone should look at it someday. There is absolute, my decisions were spot on relative to that, whether or not some interest didn't like it. Um, Dr. Pedro, I've always said, I stand by that therapy. We were looking to create an industry in Rhode Island. He treated people with the worst acuity levels so it, that basically have nowhere to go and, and you're just warehousing them. And there's a lot of testimonials out there that say, thank God. I've had people reach out to me angry at how he was treated. It, it's just political. It's not scientific. Is it a new therapy? It's a new therapy. Has he gotten great results? He's gotten a great results. This state invests so much money in different things. 
when you're investing some money into assisting people that have nowhere else to go, that are on their last therapy for assistance, and you've seen the testimonials that, that actually people have benefited, it's something that you look at. So I stand by that therapy, and I think that it is going to become something of value someday. And it doesn't cost the taxpayers 10 cents extra because you either get a therapy that helps you or you warehouse the people at a much higher cost. It's not like if they didn't get that therapy that they weren't going to get a different therapy. So minimal investment for a great outcome turned political. So I stand by the people that I have around me. I have a great team that has produced very well for the citizens. Interestingly enough, during the year you don't hear too much. At election time, you always hear the same rhetoric from the same people. And they're people that just have self-interest and want a position for political gain. There's no interest like self-interest. I'm concentrating on a positive campaign I'm going to have a conversation with my constituents about the promises we've made, the promises we've kept, what we've done for our state economy, for Cranston's economy, for our Cranston citizens, and they'll make the decision on whether or not they're supportive of that. But I can tell you, and you'll hear different from different political circles, I don't want to mention any specifically, but if you remember in my prior elections, everyone said, oh, everyone hates the speaker. He's the most loathed guy in the universe. Well, I won. And I can tell you right now, we'll have this conversation after the election because I don't want to speak for my constituents. They can speak for themselves. I am getting more positive feedback in this election cycle than I have probably since my first election cycle. So I feel extremely confident with my relationship with my neighbors and constituents. The next response is to a question about racial justice in the Black Lives Matter movement. The conversation at this point has also been slightly edited and truncated for time. Until everybody is treated equally in society, you're always going to have inequities and justices, and you're never going to be as good as you could be. You know, so once, so we, we have to work hard at creating that environment where everybody's the same. And, you know, 30 years ago, I thought we were really moving in that direction. And now everybody seems to be in different corners and some of the barriers are, are heightened. Uh, and maybe that's because they were always there and just never talked about. So I, I think it's a good time to have a national conversation about some of these issues, because until we address them, we'll never be as good as we should be and can be. So one more related question. You're in a district that support of President Trump in the last election. What are your views on him and what are you hearing from voters in the district about what, what they think of the president's performance? I, I don't hear a lot. I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about the president. Um, my guess is he's going to get a reasonable amount of support from the district. I don't think everybody changed overnight. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I didn't support the president, but you know I'm I'm also I think we're too divided as a country. Um, I didn't support him. I didn't vote for him. But once he was elected, I'm 
willing to give them a chance. I mean, I, we all succeed together or we all fail together. So I, I, I prefer to succeed together. And I, you know, I, I just think there's been so much division in the country that, uh, that we, we need to start healing. It doesn't matter who the president is because, I mean, if you get a Democratic president, then the other side is just going to do the same thing. And uh, we, we have to start working together a little better. The political divides should create competition of ideas they shouldn't lead to government paralysis and such division that you can't get anything done and, and you just spend all your time investigating one another. So um, we'll, you know, we'll see what the election brings. But I, I hear, once again, that's an issue that I hear a lot more about in the media than I do actually in the community. To bring it back very local, I would have signed Kenny Hopkins also yeah. if, if I ran into him. Do I have what? Well, I guess, what, do you have a, a preferred candidate at this point? Will you endorse the Democratic nominee? Or? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we'll, 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 see, we'll see who wins. Let's, let's see who wins the, the Democratic process, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. Um, we have relationships with people. Outside of politics, you know, uh, Kenny Hopkins, I've always had a very good relationship with. Uh, Mike Farina, I have a great relationship with. Maria Bucci, I have a great relationship with. And I have a decent relationship with Steve Stikos, but, uh, it's, you know, I'm not as familiar with him as the other three. Um, you know, politics can be crazy sometimes. I, I, I happened to be at City Hall when Mike Farina was there. I signed my papers, I signed his papers. No big deal. Um, I would have signed virtually anybody's papers unless, you know, I, I thought they were a terrible candidate that I didn't personally like. But other than that, I would more or less sign anybody's papers if they were qualified for the ballot, particularly your friends. And Mike Farina's a friend. I'm, I'm not going to disavow a friend just because he's a candidate for an office. Sure. So yeah. I, I think that got a lot more attention than it deserved. Yeah. Well... Which, which happens in political times, you know, and most issues that, that become prevalent and highlighted in political times for the rest of the year are non-existent. And a lot of the issues, and even issues that you've alluded to, they, they, it's, most of it's made up political noise. And uh, just the last question, I guess, you know, how, how have you personally and your family been, been weathering the pandemic? Um, well, for a while, uh, the economy was really shut down, so I didn't, you know, I, I just wasn't working as much, uh, and I, I made I made the statement that I was a little more bored than usual because no, and I got criticized for that. There's some political noise for you, um, but I think everybody was. Interestingly enough, I think everybody was. You know, I'm used to working sixty to eighty hours a week. Um, I, I, I have a, a pretty busy law practice and I take my public 
um, obligation and job very, very seriously. So I'm always working. So when the pandemic happened, I was always home. It was, it was, it was different. The state house was shut down. My law office was pretty much shut down. So it was quiet. And I made the statement that, you know, for the first time in a very long time in my life, I was a little bored. I didn't have 40, 60, 80 hours of work to do. So, um, I spent a lot more time at home, a lot more time with my wife and kids, um, just doing simple things. So it was, it was actually kind of nice to take that little bit of a low and, uh, just appreciate a, a, a nice sunny day without without running a million miles an hour you know so and appreciate your family without having to run and uh, commit yourself to a lot of other obligations so it, it was kind of nice and it was very different for me none of us got sick thank god um you know we we all adhered to uh the recommendations as closely as we could and um, and it, it was also an interesting time in the neighborhoods. I, I have two golden retrievers that I walk uh, every day, at least once. And you started to see people very happy in the streets, walking their dogs, just uh, spouses walking together, families walking together, and just everybody was smiling and very friendly. So it, it, it was a time where society kind of took that deep breath and break and you know that lull that i also experienced and was criticized for and uh just got to enjoy their time with each other so you know it was it was kind of nice but i was also very conflicted because i knew that you can't shut down an economy without horrific economic consequences and we are now dealing with those consequences and we're going to continue to deal with those consequences um as long as and until our economy is able to be uh, fully fully wound up to uh, full capacity. Um, so, you know, and we all depend on the economy. We all depend upon our jobs, our livelihoods, um, our, our business relationships. It's what funds our government, funds our households, funds our education everything is dependent upon a good economic engine and so i'm i continue to be very very concerned uh that as long as we have the COVID 19 challenges we're going to have economic challenges and it's it's going to cause hardship into the future and it's nobody's fault we're doing the we're all doing the best we can dealing with the consequences of this terrible pandemic I don't think Washington can fix it, the state of Rhode Island can't fix it, and our local communities can't fix it. And I think we're all in this together and we all have to row in the same direction. You know, politics is what it is and some people look to someone else to solve all of their economic problems. Um, but we're all facing the same exact, exact challenges. So um, my plan is not to be critical of anybody, to work with everybody and to produce the best possible results we can because nobody has all of the answers and, and nobody caused the problem. So we'll just do the best we can. Reasonable minds always differ or oftentimes differ or can differ, but uh, as long as they're reasonable, we can work together and we'll find appropriate solutions. And I, I'm very confident that we will face our challenges appropriately and that we will produce the best balanced budget under the circumstances to address the needs of our citizens.
Welcome back. Thank you again to Speaker Mattiello for taking the time and making the trip down here to speak with us. Uh, so Jake, we'll wrap up as we always do. Uh, again, the, the weather has been better. We're getting outside. There's less time. And obviously, we've both been, been busy at the, uh, the news grind. But uh, um, we've uh, traditionally wrapped up with a little in, uh, entertainment recommendation uh, from, uh, or from the week past and for the week ahead. So what, what's on your plate this week? So uh, it's a movie I think I'll be watching either tonight, we're recording this on a Friday, or some point this weekend. It's a movie called Palm Springs. It is on Hulu. Uh, it stars Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. Uh, or Milotti, I can't, I don't know exactly what the last name is, but she was on How I Met Your Mother. She was an episode of Black Mirror. But they are the stars of it. it is essentially, I mean, the, uh, I guess if you're looking for broad strokes, it's like Groundhog Day because it's about somebody stuck in a time loop. But it's only 90 minutes long. It's a comedy. Apparently it goes pretty fast. My A lot of people I know have recommended it. They've said nothing but good things about it. That's hysterical. Moves really fast. A really compelling story. So, I mean, I it's all the way jacked up to the top of my list now. So I'll have to check that out as soon as I can. I told Emily about it. She really wants to watch it now, too. So we'll be making time for that this weekend. At Palm Springs. I think, it's ex- I think it's exclusively on Hulu, one of the many movies that was supposed to hit theaters this year and uh, will not. So, uh, yeah, that's one I'll, I'll be checking out as soon as I can. That's cool. Yeah, I, I was reading about that. I didn't realize that it was meant to be a theatrical release. I thought it was just a straight to, to stream. But uh, Andy Samberg, that's a, a rare, rarely will miss with, with Andy Samberg, and it sounds like a fun premise. So It's true. Yeah, I'm excited to watch that one, too. Um, my plug, I guess, to go a little off the, the beaten path. I know last week I uh, mentioned the comedy Bang Bang TV show, which is sadly, I guess, leaving the streaming universe at month's end. Uh, comedy Bang Bang, of course, or not of course, probably to most people, but began as a podcast, uh, one that I am uh, quite fond of. There's a spinoff podcast that uh, the, the comedy Bang Bang host, Scott Ackerman, uh, hosts with uh, actor Adam Scott and uh it's called, uh, well, they've done a few iterations of it. The first began, Are You Talking You 2 to Me?, in which they uh, uh, went through U2's catalog and uh, talking about it. And, uh, you know, mo- most of the fun of it was just listening to them uh, banter and be silly and go completely off topic and whatever. Then they did a follow up with the band REM. They had started a third uh, edition with uh, the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers going through their catalog. But uh, to my great delight, they uh, in the second episode at the very start, um, you know, began began the episode and then quickly uh, shifted it. The new their new one will be about the Talking Heads. Ooh, I should say Talking Heads. So uh, I'm I forget what there is. It's like, are you talking Talking Heads to my Talking Head? I believe is. The- oh, now that's. <laughs> Now that's that's one that compels me because I don't I'm not huge into U2. I'm also I like REM, but I don't know if I listen to a podcast about them. But I love the Talking Heads. Me as well. I you know I'm I'm not the greatest U2 or uh, REM fan either. But uh, the joy for me is just I could listen to to Ackerman and Adam Scott right. uh, just be be ridiculous and absurd all day. So I, I really enjoy their banter and I love the Talking Heads. So. Uh, that's going to be eagerly awaited for me. My only regret is I have to wait a, wait a week between each episode, I guess. So. It's always tough. It's always the waiting is the hard part, especially in the uh, the age of binging where everything is just given to you in a full season and now I have to wait. Oh, I mean, I, my other recommendation is not, I mean, it's not really, I know a lot of people have been talking about it, but the Unsolved Mysteries that dropped on Netflix, these mm-hmm. six, they're releasing them in two six 
six six episode parts over the next like, few months, but they dropped the first six a few weeks ago, and I just tore through all of them. They are so fascinating. I highly recommend if anybody's into uh, into mysteries and, and solving stuff, it'll it'll leave you really upset at the end because none of them get solved, at least not right now. But they are very compelling stories, so I highly recommend that as well. Yeah, no, Aaron and I watched uh, an episode or two of that. It's and it was good. I, it's just not the same without Robert Stack. And That's that. fair. That's that old fair. School music, kind of the updated music a little bit. That's fair. It's uh, anyway. Mm. Well, check that. Check all that out. Our our recommendations, obviously. Indeed, we're, we're never wrong. The highest caliber. So that's right. Um, with that, uh, check us out. Obviously, we are we are Beacon Communications, publishers of the War of Beacon, Cranston Herald, Johnson Sunrise, and Coventry Reminder. Uh, check us out on WarwickOnline.com, CranstonOnline.com johnstonsunrise.net you follow me on twitter at roadie dan k follow jake on twitter at jacob underscore morocco uh you follow alex sponsler our sports editor at a spawn 27 follow our new reporter uh, i keep calling her the new reporter she's been here for, for a little while now so our warwick reporter laura wick uh, laura underscore wick w-e-i-c-k follow her and check out our uh, main roadie beat twitter at roadie beat is the handle um, check us out on Facebook, on uh, Instagram. I believe uh, the special Cranston graduation supplements, the online e-edition sections that kind of uh, expand on and include um, our coverage of graduations with a lot more uh, images and full remarks and speeches and stuff from, from the graduation ceremonies are set to go live very soon. So keep an eye out on CranstonOnline.com. We'll be promoting that on social media as well. Um, special thanks as always to my friend John Schmeninghoff for the music used in this episode um, we are on Anchor Podcast subscribe today on Spotify Apple Podcasts are the easiest places to do it um, there will be a link up on our website as well um, to give it a listen I saw that uh, last week's episode with Cranston mayoral candidate Adam Carbone got some pretty good listens so thanks to everyone for that and thanks to Adam for taking the time and we'll have, uh, this is uh, kind of our unofficial season two as a, a reminder, which is going to be more heavily focused on uh, on uh, candidates for local offices. Um, I don't know if he will be our guest next week, but I do have uh, Republican Cranston mayoral candidate Ken Hopkins uh, coming in to for a chat next Friday. So um, we'll see what materializes between now and then, but he might well be our guest next week. So with that, um, Jake, thank you much. Have a great weekend. You as well. To all our listeners, stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening and reading, and we'll talk to you soon.